The year was 1982. Ronald Reagan was president, and times were tough. Americans were still hungover from a decade of Vietnam, Watergate, and the Iran hostage crisis. Interest rates hovered near 20%. In some corners of the country, one in eight workers were unemployed. One of those places was Allentown, Pennsylvania. It was against that backdrop that an Allentown radio station seized on the moment. WSAN, an AM radio station with a new oldies format, launched a promotional contest to find listeners. The idea was simple. The station would send three listeners atop a highway billboard to see who could stay there the longest. And what would the winner get? An $18,000 modular home. In those troubled times, in a city devastated by the decline of steel, that was a serious prize. Enough so that a stunt envisioned to last days stretched into weeks and then into months and then finally captured the attention of the entire planet. At one point, a rock star entered the scene and poured fuel on the fire. It was pure chaos. Filmmaker Pat Taggart was too young to remember these events as they unfolded. But he stumbled upon the story years later and decided it needed to be told. In 2016, Taggart released the film Billboard Boys, a story odd for its day and downright bizarre in 2021. Taggart joins me today from his home near Philadelphia. Well, welcome, Pat. Thank you so much for uh, for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure, Scott. Thank you for having me. This story really kind of has it all. Uh, It's a quirky, forgotten story. Uh, There's a historical context, uh, and there is tons of source material. When did you become aware of this story? Yeah, so my wife is from the Lehigh Valley of Pennsylvania. Uh, I grew up in Philadelphia, so Allentown is essentially a suburb of Philadelphia. And we were visiting over the holidays, and I looked in the corner as we were packing up to leave after Christmas, and my mother-in-law and her husband were were just kind of giggling while holding a newspaper. Now, anytime I see two sixty somethings laughing and giggling in a corner, I want in on the joke. And so I said, "What are you laughing at?" And they said, "Well, we're laughing at this this article about the billboard contest. Remember that?" And I said, "No, I've never heard of the billboard contest." And they said, "Oh, you have to read this article." And so they handed me the newspaper. I read it. I was immediately fascinated. And I thought, well, this is like a thirty year look back article. We have to be about twenty nine years late to the show to be able to do anything on this. And remarkably, after a search, you know, with Frank Pecco, our producer, we found nothing that had ever been done on it. And that kind of started us on our quest. So there are so many compelling facets to this story. Which one hooked you first? Oh, man. Well, you know, I, I, I really love comedies. I like anything that has a quirk to it. And so this thing is not a straight comedy. There's a lot of heart to it. Um, and, you know, it's a really wonderful character piece. But at the heart of it, I thought, man, this is this is kind of quirky and funny. And and when of course, when I read the part, I know we'll get to it when you read the part about a guy getting busted for selling drugs to an undercover cop from the top of a billboard that he lives on. I thought, OK, I'm in. The story captures the essence of the early Reagan years, which in many ways were a hangover from the Carter years. Was this an early angle for you and or did it emerge from your interviews? Yeah, you know, I I think we really went into the interviews just just wanting to learn because we were such fans of what we knew, but we also knew that we didn't know a whole lot. And so I was born in 1979. And uh, while I remember a a little bit of that time, I don't remember too much of the Reagan years. Of course, I learned about it in school. uh, But what I did know was that it was 
it, it was a really tough economy at the time. When these guys went up to live on this billboard, times were not good. Interest rates were 18%. And in that, in that area, Scott, the Lehigh Valley, Bethlehem Steel was a major provider of employment and Bethlehem Steel was on the obvious decline. And so while the rest of the nation was really feeling it, that particular area was under a serious, serious crunch. And so I think the economic backdrop, you really can't tell this story. The fact that these guys went up on a billboard to win a home without pointing out how difficult it was to get a home otherwise for most people that live there. Let's talk about these three guys. They were in many ways kind of avatars for, you know, early 80s Rust Belt America, yet they were kind of distinct in their own ways. Can you say a little bit about each of them from your perspective as a filmmaker? Absolutely. And what I love is that they pulled these names randomly out of a hat and you couldn't have gotten three guys that were any more different. All had the common thread that they would have stayed up there forever if they had to. So you had no softies in this group. Let's start with Dalton Young. Dalton Young was a free spirit, uh, kind of a hippie leftover in the early 80s. He had just gotten out of the military. He was in Korea and just gotten back from the army. And he had an overbearing mother who, as soon as he walked in the door from the military, didn't even put his bag down. She gave him a hug and said, I got you in a contest. You're going to be in a contest. You're going to live on a billboard. So he was like, okay, cool. You know, like he, he was just kind of trying to figure out what his next step was in life. He was very much a partier. And I think this was just kind of a place he can hang out and, and plot next steps. Then you have Ron Kistler. Ron Kistler was extremely quiet, still is extremely quiet, a very tough nut to crack. He was very much a chain of command guy. And the commander in his life was his father. And his father said, Ronnie, he was an, Ron was an out-of-work truck driver. And he said, Ronnie, uh, this contest is for you. You go up on that board, you go win that home. And he said, yes, sir. And you couldn't have gotten that guy down with a crane. He was going to stay up there. He wasn't getting himself involved in any kind of controversy or shenanigans. He went up with one purpose, which was to win a home, and he was going to stay until he could. And then you have the clown of the group. You have Mike McKay. And Mike McKay was recently married. I think he was married about three months when he went up on the billboard. Uh, he worked with his wife in a home caring for mentally handicapped children. And he was incredibly ambitious. He was a showman. And he said, hey, this is our chance to get a home. What we learned throughout the story was that, yes, his primary purpose for going up on the board was to win a home. But we, when he got up there, his primary purpose became to become famous. And that was kind of the best years of Mike McKay, but then also kind of led to his downfall. So th this crazy stunt was a promotion by a radio station, WSAN. How did the station come up with it? WSAN was owned by a guy named Harold Fulmer, who was a multimillionaire. He owned, you know, a ton of McDonald's. He owned hotels and restaurants. He was kind of the richest guy in the Lehigh Valley. And so he bought these radio stations primarily as a way to advertise his other businesses. And then if they could turn a profit, fantastic. But he was a big, big marketer. He was a big gimmick guy. He loved promotions. They had heard that I think it was a board in Indianapolis once sent guys up on a billboard. Now, they could only afford one billboard. Remember, this was pre-internet and this was AM radio. And so they were switching formats from country to big band, like time, music of our lives, I think they call it. So think about going from country music, and this is early 80s country music, not the country music we have today, to like Sinatra. And so they were switching to this classy format and they thought, well, how can we make this one billboard that we can afford stand out? 
And the, the general manager at the time said, well, why don't we just put three guys up there to live on it? Three guys or gals. It was open to men and women. You know, we can have them up there standing on the billboard, sleeping on the billboard in tents. And people will certainly take notice. Then they were hoping for 30 days publicity. And obviously they got a lot more than what they bargained for. So tell me about the living conditions on the billboard. The rules were pretty specific, right? The rules were very specific. So, you know, they got a tent, they got a phone so that the radio station could keep in touch with them and bring them on the air every day, make sure they were still alive. Uh, they got a chemical toilet. That was about it for what they received. And then the rules were very specific about who could come up there and who couldn't. And essentially it was just radio station personnel. So these guys couldn't come down. Sometimes people hear the story and they think, well, they could come down at nighttime, go home and sleep, or they could come down and use the bathroom. No, they could never come down. And also the station didn't send them any food or take away their waste. And so they had to have a ground crew to do that or they would starve and their tent would get awfully nasty, awfully quick. So you alluded to this earlier that this was kind of a perfect storm, that these three guys were built to stay up there for a long, long time. At, at what point did the station realize they had a problem on their hands? Yeah, I think the station never anticipated that it was going to run into winter. These guys went up there in September and it was beautiful weather. And, you know, the day they went up was rainy, but for the most part, it was still shorts and T-shirts. And then what they realized very shortly was there was no camaraderie on the board. These guys didn't acknowledge each other's presence, even though they lived on the same billboard. They didn't even give each other a head nod, not a hello, nothing. They, they pretended each other didn't live there. So it was a fierce competition from day one. And then when those winter winds blew in and it started to get cold, the station was like, OK, we have an issue and conversations started internally with the station and then also with the mobile home provider because it was a mobile home company that donated this trailer home for the contest. They were the sponsor of the contest. This mobile home company uh, got together with the station and said, guys, it's probably you know time just because of public pressure. We don't want somebody to die up there. Let's talk about ways to bring them down. And they actually had a plan in place to bring these guys down for Christmas, which would have been three months two more months longer than they expected. That's when the Wall Street Journal stepped in. That was a, I guess, a pivot point in the story. What, what happened there? That was the reason why we're talking about it today. So you have a rookie reporter from the Wall Street Journal named Betsy Morris that's driving through Allentown and sees these guys up on the billboard and like, is like, what the hell is going on? And so she gets out and uh, she, she talks to these guys and they're like, oh, that was, that was kind of cool. Like she was so young that they didn't expect anything. And then the next morning, they're broadcasting. WSAN is broadcasting. And all of a sudden, the phones start lighting up. Now, typically at radio stations, if the phones are lighting up, they're giving something away. Well, they're not giving anything away. So the phones are lighting up. The DJ Gene Worley's like, you know, he's scattered. He's trying to keep his composure. He gets through to the next commercial break, walks out, and someone slaps a Wall Street Journal down in front of him. The Wall Street Journal ran this on the front page. And Scott, literally overnight, you have media from... Germany, Japan, you know, I mean, the furthest reaches of the planet are making their way to little Allentown, Pennsylvania to cover an AM radio station stunt in the days before the Internet, which was completely, completely insane. So in the midst of all this, Billy Joel released uh, his song Allentown, which I, I believe one character in the film says that without that plot element, if you will, this whole thing doesn't explode yeah, what are the chances, right? You know, what are the chances that these two things converged 
at the very same time. These guys go up in September. Billy releases his song in November. And then that song picks up steam as the contest picks up steam, because shortly after he released that is the Wall Street Journal article. Yeah, I think most people, when they heard Allentown, had never heard of Allentown, the town. <laughs> and so uh, people started to look into it. And then the most notable thing happening in Allentown at that time, I guess, twofold was the demise of Bethlehem Steel and then also these three guys living up on a board trying to win a mobile home. And so it certainly, certainly attracted attention to them. Let me ask you, how is the story remembered in Allentown? Is it with pride, humor, disdain? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. You know, the, the really interesting thing about this, and even back to when the story was happening, was that local people were far less impressed by it than folks all around the world. So these guys were getting requests from radio stations and television stations in New Zealand to talk to them on the phone from their tents. Uh, but you'd have the guy that lives down the street from the billboard that was t would turn his head away when he drove by in the morning on the way to work. I think you have a, what you have there is a very proud town. It's a very blue collar town. And a lot of folks there were feeling the crunch and they were doing everything they could on the ground to try to make a buck and to survive. And I think for some people, they thought that these guys were trying to take the easy kind of look at me way out. And it never really became a source of pride. In fact, when we set out to make this film, there were a lot of people that were like, I don't want to, you know, not the people that were involved. They were actually very eager to talk about it because they never felt like they got the true story out there. But there was a lot of people in town that were just like, why do you why do you guys want to talk about that? You know, that was embarrassing, you know, with these guys living up there. So it was a really bizarre dynamic, Scott, where you had interest everywhere else except for the place that it took place. This seems like the kind of story that would not be possible today. Now that you've taken this dive into like early 80s, Rust Belt America, what have you learned about what the country was then and what it is now? Yeah, I wonder that often about whether something like this could, could take place. You know, I mean, on the, on the one hand, I think that it's a marketer's dream. I think that if it did take place today, that these guys would be household names everywhere around the globe because there'd be webcams in their 10 and there would be, you know, just because of the proliferation of the internet and the fact that these guys would have mobile devices, you know, I think that it would be very interesting. I don't know. I, I don't know what it would look like today. I'm actually really surprised that no one's tried to replicate it. There was something with the college football national championship where they had a couple people living up on a billboard. I don't know if you remember that like a couple of years ago. And it was really funny because we got so many messages then like, hey, this is the same as yours. Uh, first of all, it's not ours. It, it belonged to the to the folks that participated. But uh, you know, it, it was a completely different setup, obviously. I mean, these guys went through it for nine months. I don't know. I, I and I, I know that that's not the greatest answer, Scott, but I've gone back and forth on this. I don't know if it's something that that could actually happen today. So I want to turn the conversation to you and kind of the struggle to make this film, because I fundamentally believe all films are a bit of a struggle in some way or, or the other. You made this film for under $10,000, which is an amazing achievement. What were the economics of your situation? Uh, did you have a concrete budget when you started? No, you know, I've, I'm really fortunate in the sense that I, that video production is my living. I have a company called Tag Visual. And so we do work for, for, you know, I grew up making wedding videos and doing work for companies. And so I was fortunate to have all of this equipment. 
And, you know, when you work in that video production industry, a lot of times you by default become a jack of all trades. So when we found this story, we didn't do the responsible thing and try to raise a budget so that I could hire a DP and and a sound engineer and do it the right way. I thought, well, you know, we have equipment. Let's try to get these guys. And I wanted to be sensitive to the fact that a lot of these folks were, were getting older and, you know, those interviews needed to happen, especially since we'd already lost a couple people intimately attached to the story before we jumped on board. And so, I mean, literally Frank Pecka, the producer would track these folks down convince them to have an on-camera conversation with me. I would pack up my car with lights and sound gear and cameras, and I'd go out, set them up myself, sit down across from these folks, have a conversation then pack up my stuff and leave. So it was, this is, this was almost entirely a two man show, Frank Pecco on the production side, convincing people that they should trust us to help them tell the story. And then me on the production side. And so, yes, was it a struggle? Most definitely. But I enjoyed every single second of it. And I think I love this story more today than I did when we found it. So tell me more about that relationship with Frank, uh, that the producer director relationship to me is very mysterious. And I think it takes yeah. many different forms and different films. In this case, it seems like Frank was a leg man and you were kind of the creative guy. Um, how did that kind of manifest over the course of the entire production? Well, Frank is. I think every filmmaker needs a Frank. First of all, he's, he's my best friend in the world and he's my father's godchild. So I think that, you know, that there, there's a tremendous amount of trust there. And I think a lot of times if you don't have that, you have nothing. And so if a lot of times if filmmakers and producers are working with each other strictly on a business relationship, things can go sideways. Frank and I's personal relationship has always come first. And so, you know, he didn't start out wanting to get involved in the film industry at all. I, I had made a couple of short films early on in my 20s. And he said, you know, hey, I love these. You know, let me know if I can ever help you when we'd already had a personal relationship. And what I learned was that this guy was the most persuasive human being on the planet. And he has a way of building relationships. And, you know, if he calls you three times and you don't call him back, he'll call your mother. And but he'll do it in a way where you don't end up getting annoyed by him or hating him like he does it with such tact and respect that this film never, ever would have gotten done without him. And he has zero interest in the creative. So he came over to the house one night. He said, I want to check out what you're editing when we were in post for Billboard and we were a half hour in. He's like, this is the worst experience of my life. Like, I, I don't want to be here anymore. And I said, all right, we'll go home. You know, so uh, we have very, very clear division of roles. And I think it's served us well so far. That That is amazing. I, I think for a lot of people that don't edit, they look at that and say, you're stuck in this room all day long doing that. I've never seen a human being so miserable, Scott. Like he was like, this is awful. Like, because essentially my whole process when I, when I edit, and I assume for a lot of people that, that edit something like a doc is, you know, you have to organize all the footage first. And so when I get back from an interview, I'll take that interview and I'll cut it into anything that's potentially a usable soundbite. And I do that for all the interviews that we do. And then I take all those sound bites and I organize them into buckets of common themes. And so for this movie, it was, you know, um, the drug bust um, or the Wall Street Journal. And so anybody that said anything about the Wall Street Journal, I have that in a bucket. And so he came over during a time where I wasn't assembling a scene. I was essentially organizing footage and finding these sound bites and bucketing them. And he thought, this is the worst experience of my life. I couldn't do this for a day. But I also, the idea of trying to call somebody or talk to a television station and find out what source footage they have makes my skin crawl. So it just, it's, I'm so, so, so grateful to have somebody like Frank 
that we can create with where he's very happy doing what he does and lets me kind of focus on the things that I really love to do, which is tell stories. You guys also did your own marketing and distribution. And as I understand it, did not even pursue festivals at the outset. Uh, that That's a bit of a non-traditional route. Tell me about that decision. Yeah. You know, in the past, I, I think... I think film festivals have changed quite a bit over the years and perhaps I'm a bit jaded, but you know, we, uh, we've had situations in the past, you know, we had a film that the pre-screener for Seattle film festival was like, Hey, this is fantastic. I recommended this to get in because we kind of, <laughs> he posted something he shouldn't have posted and we tracked him down. He's like, don't tell them who I am. Um, and, and he recommended it. And the only reason it didn't get in was because it didn't have any name actors and they didn't think they could monetize it. So I think film festivals have changed quite a bit. They are money-making machines now in many regards, and they're no longer about serving independent filmmakers. And I think uh, they will gladly accept your submission money. In many cases, you have zero chance of getting in unless you have some kind of inside connect. And so what we thought was, you know, let's just let's do this thing a little bit differently. And, you know, we were contacted almost immediately by a very reputable company that wanted to option Billboard Boys uh, to create it into a narrative feature film. And so we just thought that was that was kind of the better way to move with the film and that that feature film would really shine a light on Billboard Boys. And so uh, so that's that's the direction we wanted to go. Now, that option has expired, but we are now in talks with about four other production companies and just trying to vet those and figure out which one has the best chance to get this thing across the finish line. We did link up with an aggregator shortly after the documentary was finished because you kind of need an aggregator to help get this film on the platforms like iTunes and Amazon. The film got up there and then something really crappy happened to us where we had all these really great reviews for Billboard Boys. Uh, and um, the aggregator wound up, they were, and they were a really big aggregator. They were pulling some kind of pyramid scheme. And so all the films that they had gotten up on platforms like Amazon were immediately taken down. So one day we woke up and our film was no longer commercially available on the digital sites. Now we've done a lot of work to get the film back up, but if you were to go to Amazon right now, you would see that Billboard Boys, Billboard Boys has like one review because it just got back up. So, um, so Scott, for you and your audience, you know, the only ask I have is, you know, if you have a chance to like the film and you watch the film, please review the film because we are desperately trying to get back all those reviews we had and they could not transfer from the previous listing, unfortunately. Your background is in narrative film, and this was your first documentary. What did you learn about the differences in the two crafts? You know, it's funny. It's, it was my first documentary kind of in the creative realm, I guess you would say. My first passion project. But on the, on the, for work, the work I do for companies, I've been essentially creating documentaries my entire professional life. So when we go in to help companies tell stories through Tag Visual, I'm always sitting across from business leaders and getting them to speak to me unscripted and tell the story of their company and then shaping it into something that they can be proud of that feels authentic to their brand. So it was a really natural transition for me. And I'll tell you, after having done Billboard, I have zero desire to do a narrative again. Like, I, I don't want to have to worry about, you know, weather and actors and call times and all that other stuff. I mean, I think there's people that do a really wonderful job. I don't think I bring anything particularly uh, fresh or new or wonderful to that world of narrative filmmaking. Uh, but I, I really love the documentary format. And, and I think that, you know, from here on out, that's really going to be our focus is hopefully finding really cool, quirky stories that haven't been told yet and finding ways to, to bring those to an audience. 
part of my selection process, if you will, in finding films and creators is really people kind of on the upswing of their careers, because I think that's where the learnings are so rich. What have you learned that you could maybe convey to somebody starting out today about how to get going, how to create some momentum? And like, what are the big obstacles that you've faced and surmounted so far? Yeah, I think, and I don't know if this is exactly what you're looking for, but I had a massive learning very early on in Billboard Boys. Ron Kistler had his girlfriend, Sue Kistler, come visit him at the Billboard 180 out of the 181 days that he lived there. And soon thereafter, they were married. Ron won a home. You know, they lived in it for 20 years before they upgraded and they started a family and grew a family in this home. And so when I went to his house on day one of filming, I assumed that he was going to tell me that billboard, this billboard contest was kind of the launching point of their lives and that it was this great kind of um, romantic experience for them and, you know, that their lives were forever changed because of it. And what we got from them was was indifference. You know, and they said, I don't understand why anybody would think this is interesting. It was just something that I did. And, you know, and Sue said the same thing. And she's like, we don't get it. And so I remember walking out that day from the interview and saying, that's it. I'm done. Like, I'm, I'm not getting paid for this. I'm not going to spend time away from my wife and kids and, you know, my responsibilities to, to tell this story for the next couple of years. If the guy that actually lived on the billboard doesn't think it was interesting. And it actually took me a full calendar year to realize that Ron Kistler's indifference was perhaps the most interesting thing related to this entire story. And we actually lead off the documentary and end the documentary with his indifference, where the rest of the world was fascinated by it. The guy that lived it thought it wasn't a big deal, but it took me a year. And so what's the learning? The learning is when you are telling someone's story, don't make it up in your own head beforehand. Go there with an open mind and really try to find the truth. And if I did that, I would have left that day with a completely different frame of mind. I wouldn't have felt defeated. I would have felt inspired. Yeah, that that seemed like that would have been an existential crisis for a lot of filmmakers because Ron Kessler is one of these guys that nothing really amazes him. Uh, he's the kind of guy that probably shrugs at a lot of things. And he may have said 11 words in the entire documentary. And yet his character is so distinct. He really comes through as a lovably taciturn kind of guy. Yeah, I felt like a total failure that day, like so much so that typically I, you know, and I do it a lot for work. So I'm always sitting across from people and I feel like I can always get something out of someone. And Scott, I couldn't get anything out of this guy for the most part. I got him to laugh once or twice. But he was just a stone wall, as was his wife. And he kind of was that way when the camera stopped it as well. It's just who he was. And I thought, man, I, I suck. Like, this is going to be a bad movie. But I, I couldn't see past my, my own you know, kind of predetermined vision of how he would feel about it, something that he lived, not me. And so I'll never forget that. I think it'll make me a better filmmaker going forward. So that was your first interview. And you left with that sinking feeling. How did you kind of rally for the next interview? My wife, she said, stop being such a baby. It's the same story that you found that you love and you're going to figure out a way to make it work. That's the God's honest truth. If it wasn't for her, if it wasn't for my wife, Courtney, I would have stopped after day one and said, this is a total waste of time. And she kind of gave me that, you know, that verbal slap across the face and said, you know, toughen up, figure it out. And, you know, hopefully we've done that. <laughs> Yeah, you you not only 
figured it out. You led with it. You you literally framed the movie around this guy's nonchalance. Thank you so much. You know, and, and I think what people, most people don't see, and you alluded to it earlier about it being a struggle, was yes, the movie starts with that. There were a whole lot of days where I sat in front of an editor for a very long time and made no progress because of that particular stuck. And that's all the stuff that that no one will ever see or really know about unless there's good people like you that are helping to kind of dig into these documentaries and find out kind of what the experience of the filmmaker was. So, you know, I think all filmmakers owe people like you, Scott, a, a debt of gratitude for for really helping us tell the story behind the story. What has the reception been in Allentown, certainly, but throughout the state of Pennsylvania? Yeah, it's it's been so gratifying and, and we're super grateful. So the, the most interesting one was after we premiered it for just the cast and crew and, and, and close friends, we rented a theater right at the foot of the steel stacks where Bethlehem Steel used to operate. And there's a wonderful theater there. And the, and the movie got done. And, and I've never been I typically don't watch the movies that I, I've created with with a with an audience just because it's uncomfortable. Uh, but I sat through that one. And, and then just as the the ending credits were starting to roll, I walked out. Uh, it was just nervous energy. And I kind of stood off to the corner. And sure enough, the next person out of the theater was Ron Kistler. And Ron Kistler kind of made a beeline for me. And I thought, well, I, I don't know if this guy's going to punch me in the face or give me a hug. Um, and he walked up and he stuck his hand out and he said, you know, I guess it was a little more interesting than I thought. And to me, that made the entire process worthwhile. Uh, I think when, when you are telling a true story and you are telling someone or some group of people's story, you have a tremendous opportunity to get it right. And every bit of it they may not agree with because, you know, you are essentially kind of pulling on people's memories to shape a story, you know, from several decades ago. And so, but I think what you want to leave them with is the impression that you wanted to do right by everyone and tell it fairly and not try to sensationalize it when you're doing a doc. And I think that, you know, that one line from him, I guess it was more interesting than I thought uh, that, that was, that really kind of, uh, you know, it made you feel good. It made, because Frank and I, Frank and I, uh, it was, it was a long journey for sure. And then the reception otherwise has just been really tremendous. I think a lot of people say they feel like, because, you know, there's a stigma around docs for people that don't watch docs and you and I love docs, but people that don't watch docs, they think back to old PBS documentaries, you know, that, um, and they don't think that there can be kind of a narrative style story told in documentary format. And so people say that felt like a movie. I'm like, well, that's kind of what documentaries are, but I just say, thank you, you know? And, um, and so, you know, hopefully if it, if it opened a couple more people up to the idea of watching a documentary, then we've done our job. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I've loved documentaries my entire life, but I, I've noticed in recent years, I go to Amazon prime video and they're just rows and rows and rows. And I, I, I can't get to the end of the list. There's clearly something going on in our entertainment culture where either there are more makers or more consumers. What, what do you make of this trend that you're seeing in, in documentary? Yeah, another great question. I, I think it's the barrier to entry, to be honest with you. So I mentioned earlier that, you know, a filmmaker can spend two or three years on a film, potentially put their life savings into it. And when it gets done, there's some executive that says who's in it. And, you know, if you couldn't afford to get an A-list actor, in many cases, they don't want to see it. You know, and with a documentary, I don't think that barrier to entry exists. I think if you make there's not the expectation when you make a film that there's going to be someone that you know in it. So really all you have to do is make a great film 
that is going to entertain people or make them think or make them feel something. And you have a chance to, to get an audience. What are you working on now? And if, if it's documentary, tell me more. Yeah. So the real struggle so far is that because this isn't kind of our full-time job and, and we both kind of still work for a living, quote unquote, um, we have loved billboards so much and we've been so involved in kind of the next steps and helping to try to get it to the big screen and, and uh, see it converted into a narrative feature that we haven't really dove headfirst into a feature doc. Now we did just finish a short doc and I'd be happy to share it with you. It's called Nick lightning. And that was very much a passion project about a friend of ours um, who uh, is mentally challenged and he has this kind of dream and it's not really a dream. He actually kind of lives this persona as a rock star, despite the fact that he has no musical ability whatsoever. And, uh, and so I think kind of the theme of that movie is kind of you are what you think you are and, and don't let the world tell you what you can and can't be. And so I'd love to share that with you just to get your feel for that. And we're starting to circulate that film right now. We've cut it down from what was about 45 minutes, which is essentially no man's land in the film world to about 22 minutes, which is a bit more palatable. Uh, and so that was a short doc. Really enjoyed that process. We're incredibly close to it, Scott. So I don't know if it's if it's great or if it's not very good at all, just because it's about a dear friend. Um, but, you know, we uh, we've gotten really close a couple of times to pulling the trigger on the topic that we thought would make a great feature. And for one reason or another, we've pumped the brakes. I just want to make sure when we dive into a big project that it's something that we love as much as we love Billboard. And we're willing to say, yeah, we want to we want to dedicate a couple of years of our life to this thing. And it's I, to me, it's really, really difficult to get to that point now for some reason. And, and I'm just hoping something floats along that feels quirky. And I, I want it to be similar to Billboard, where we're not the 45th team to tell the story and trying to find a new way to tell it. I really love the idea of trying to unearth something that maybe otherwise wouldn't get told you know, something that has some quirk to it, that has some really interesting characters. And I think there's wonderful documentaries where they kind of trumpet a social issue um, or take a stand in one way or another. And, and those movies are incredibly important. That's just not what we want to do. We want to tell stories. We want to tell stories that essentially could be a narrative film, could be a scripted film, but there's enough meat there and enough material there that we can tell it in documentary format. Given the nature of a documentary, which is a little bit of a wait for the next thing to happen, uh, how do you time slice with your paying work to keep a project moving forward while you're doing all the other stuff? Yeah, I think I try to wake up a couple hours before my kids do, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's very much trying to steal time away. Uh, and and it's, it's, it's hard. And one of the hard things is that, you know, a lot of times the work that I do is very cyclical. So, you know, you'll have a two week break where there's not a whole lot of uh, work work to do and you try to get as much done as you can. And then you might have a, a, a then a month after that where you're just slammed and you have family commitments. And so, yeah, it's difficult if I was able to work on films full time, because I do think that we turn the work pretty quickly. I think we could pump out a ton of content if there were enough stories around that we really wanted to tell. Uh, but it's just the nature of the beast. And you know, I don't believe in in rough drafts or doing things halfway. And so we didn't release Billboard until we could look at it and say, yeah, we're really proud of this. Like, this is our best effort. And so, you know, if the next one does take three years and, you know, our families don't feel neglected through that process, that's way better to me than trying to do something in six months. 
I think we're all a little bit crazy as filmmakers because we spend an exorbitant amount of our life doing these projects. And essentially we're making the films for someone else, right? Like at the end of the day, it's not like we're building a house that we plan to live in. We're making these films and sure we're proud of them and, and we can, you know, we can watch them and hold them. Uh, but you know, eventually what you're doing is you're making them for other people. And all you want is for people to say, Hey, I really liked your film. Great job. You know, so it's a lot of work for, for that little thing. And if you make a couple bucks, that's wonderful. You know, that doesn't happen very often. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, you're, you're kind of giving it to the world and, and hoping that the world smiles on it. And man, if they don't, it's, it's like, oh my goodness, I just spent a big part of my life for something that nobody likes. And so that's, you know, I think that's kind of the insecurity in all of us where you're sitting in an editing room late one night and you're working on something and you're thinking, geez, is anybody even going to think this is any good? Is there any place I can send people that can learn more about you and your work? Yeah. You know, we have the website billboardboys.com and, you know, you can check out some of the media we've done. There's a direct link to the film there on Amazon. If you still like kind of the physical film, you can pick up a DVD or a Blu-ray there. Um, and then again, if, if people did want to check it out and would be so kind, please write us a review. I'm so sad that all those reviews disappeared and, and would love just to get people's thoughts, uh, you know, on what they think. Because again, that's, that's really the main reason why we make films in the first place is to help find an audience. Pat, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. Scott, it was my pleasure. Thanks for doing what you do. It's really important. Pat Taggart's film, Billboard Boys, can be seen for free on Amazon Prime Video. 